was looking at the very ending of the most famous, influential, transformative sermon ever given. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And it's uh, just three chapters long. You could read the whole thing out loud in less than 20 minutes. And this morning I'm going to talk with you for about 30 minutes on just a tiny slice of it. I urge you to read the whole thing, as you probably have already, but do it again this afternoon so you get the, some of the full uh, benefit. Now, some theologians have speculated maybe this is actually several sermons kind of glued together. Um, I don't think so. Uh, I think it's probably a short summary of a much longer sermon. In those days, you wouldn't walk for hours to hear a 20-minute sermon. Uh, you were expecting to get some depth as well. And, uh, and in fact, I think, in fact, this is uh, Jesus' stump speech that he probably said many times, portions of it, uh, um, maybe other uh, teachings as well, because there are plenty of teachings of Jesus in other parts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But nevertheless, this is the most famous and most influential sermon of all time. Even non-Christians like Mahatma Gandhi taught the Sermon on the Mount more than he taught any of the Hindu texts. It was so gripping. It's changed lives. It's transformed nations and uh, still has awesome power. In the sermon are the Beatitudes, the deeper law. Jesus says, you know, the, you've heard it said such and such. But I say to you, where he goes deeper into our intentions and our, our spirit life, our thought life, love your enemies. Wow, that one's in there. Uh, how to be generous. Um, emphasizing ask and you'll receive, uh, seek and you'll find, knock and it will be open. The Lord's Prayer is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, not to worry. Just think about how God runs all of nature. Not to worry. Don't judge others. And many other great teachings. Definitely worth rereading. Amen? Now, in this text, uh, we see three themes that are really summative in terms of action. What to do now. And I, I think they can be summarized in terms of these three key words of fruitfulness, fellowship, and follow-through. Fruitfulness fellowship, and follow-through. Say it with me if you would. Fruitfulness, fellowship, and follow-through. Now, in the beginning of the, the text that was read by uh, uh, Cassie earlier, um, so we're, we are here to emphasize, first of all, the fruitfulness. You will know the fruitfulness, by the fruitfulness of people, whether they are true prophets. And um, I'd like for our purposes to focus on what fruitfulness means in terms of showing that we are with God. When we think of, of the fruitfulness of a Christian life, we probably, if we've been in the Bible at all, you think of the fruit of the Spirit, which is found in Galatians 5, 23, right? And it's one fruit, although it has nine different names, because it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's one fruit. 
but it includes uh, these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. All of that as one awesome fruit of the Spirit's presence. If we look at those nine names of the fruit of the Spirit, all of them are taught in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's not Paul that came up with this genius list. Uh, If you study the Sermon on the Mount, you see all nine, and five of them specifically by name. For example, the first one, love. If you want the fruit of the Spirit, look at in a way that that shows that you are with Jesus, look at this awesome gift of love. In the Sermon on the Mount, it says, you know, love your enemies. Later on, uh, Matthew records that Jesus says one of the two greatest commands is to love your neighbor as yourself. In another setting that stirred a conversation with an attorney that was looking for a way to uh, uh, simplify this in terms of being able to check that one off. And then Jesus gave the incredible uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, where the issue is not to figure out who your neighbor is, but are you the neighbor to everyone else? Years ago, uh, I was pastor of a church in a racially charged area. You may have heard of Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, Well, we lived just a half a mile from the KKK headquarters for three counties. And when we moved in, those folks quickly figured out who Vicki and I were, and they had names for us. Names for us. Yes, uh, I won't say the whole word, but end lovers. And, uh, and I, I would tell people, I don't know if there are any ends ever in the world, uh, I didn't say the whole word. Uh, but I love everybody that God made. So, yeah, I'll accept that. And um, in, in, you know, we, we, the first thing, one of the first things we did within the first month of uh, moving in, we invited all the pastors for the whole community to come meet together, pray together, uh, black and white. The community was half black, half white. And uh, only the white pastors came. So I uh, called everybody again and said, no, you're really welcome. You know, I was the new kid in the block. I was 24 years old. They maybe thought I wasn't quite serious or didn't really understand how things went. But I urged all of them to come. We adjusted the time so everyone could come. And all the black pastors came, and only two of the white, uh, other white pastors. Um, but there was this uh, tension even to meet for listening to each other and to pray together was a big controversy. One pastor told me, when I met him on the street, said, oh, I can't come to your home. If I came to your home, I would be kicked out of my pulpit within a week. And I looked at him, and he was old enough to be my father or grandfather. I said to him, it's not your pulpit. So we need this radical sense of love, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love our enemies. In one case, uh, just two days after a a race riot a block from our church, I I really felt I 
maybe I should change the topic because the topic was love your neighbor as yourself. And I was going to be very specific about being sure that that means your African-American neighbors and your white neighbors, all your neighbors, love them as you love yourself. And um, But when I heard about the riot on uh, Saturday morning, the riot was, was uh, Friday night. We lived about a half a mile from the church. Didn't hear about it till Saturday morning. But everybody was talking about it. And I thought, maybe, Lord, maybe we need to shift the topic. And I immediately felt the Lord say, no, this is the right topic. And I thought, well, but I won't bring up the riot. And the Lord impressed on my heart, no, talk about it. Because if the Bible doesn't shine the light on our path, We're not treating it as the word. So I did. And amazingly, everyone left the church, uh, 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 you know, at the end, saying, fine sermon, pastor, you know, the usual formality. So I came back in uh, to uh, retrieve my notes. And not realizing that as I came up to the pulpit to retrieve my Bible and my notes, the treasurer of the church had followed me up. So I, I turned around, and here he is old enough to be my dad, you know, just shaking, absolutely shaking. And his voice cracked like he was a teenage boy's voice. His voice cracked as he said, I didn't like anything you said this morning. By the way, as treasurer of the church, he wrote my check. And he was probably the wealthiest man in in the whole community, owned the biggest business. So, I didn't know what to say. Nothing in seminary trained me what you're supposed to say in a circumstance. So I just looked at him in love, and he was glaring at me, and his body shaking. But I just looked at him with love and prayed that God would, you know, at the right moment, give me the wisdom to know what to say. And then, and then he still staring, still shaking, still his voice cracking. After, seriously, a minute of silence, two men staring at each other, on the platform of the church, after about a minute, he's just trying, he's struggling to find out how to finish the sentence. And I'm praying that God would transform him. I'm praying that he would feel God's love and my love. And he started talking, and again, he says, Paul, I didn't like anything you said this morning, but it was right. And you have to keep saying it because we've never, ever heard this before. So one good reason to love your enemy is that you may be able to help transform the enemy if you show God's love. Jesus said also in the Sermon on the Mount uh, in terms of joy, if you're persecuted, If uh, people are mean to you and insult you, rejoice. Because that's how we treat the the people treated the great godly prophets. You're in good company. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Peace. Remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes? Blessed, happy are the peacemakers. They are called the children of God. Faith, you know, God will take care of you, you have little faith, Jesus says. If you have really faith, 
you'll appreciate that God is taking good care of you. Self-control, Jesus said, it's, it's not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but instead, turn the other cheek. You know, control your anger. Don't have to settle the score. All of this is in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and certainly uh, references to patience and gentleness and goodness, um, kindness, the other uh, fruit of the Spirit. So if you want to go deep on the fruit of the Spirit, read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Now notice how these are choices. You know, we've we bought into the contemporary idea that love is a feeling. But no, love is an action. It's a choice. And if you want to grow the fruit of love, then it, it matters how you focus your attention, how you act. It's a choice for better results. Jesus insists on making a difference. And one difference he makes is to transform your life and mine through love. As we love our neighbors, ourselves, even as we love our enemies. I was thrilled to preview a movie that will be released in two or three weeks called Best of Enemies. It's a documentary of Durham, North Carolina, where, where in the midst of racial tension in 1971, the same time of that sermon I just shared with you, in that situation, it was so hopeless that the only thing they could uh, turn to was to have the leaders in the community listen to each other for two weeks. And it was transformative because the very act of listening is to show respect, to really listen. And what they heard was not what they were expecting. Nobody fit the stereotype of the other. So... I urge you to uh, watch out for that to be released in the theaters. It's, it's, it's very real, to me, very believable, because we lived it in a similar setting in Virginia. So fruitfulness, choose fruitfulness. Cultivate that through the scriptures, through prayer, through fellowship with one another. The second one is fellowship, and a particular kind of fellowship. The, the text that was read earlier ends on a rather disturbing note you know, where we have uh, people saying, Hey, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. But only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And Jesus says, Well, there are people that say, Hey, we prophesied in your name. We healed people in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And Jesus will say, Jesus says, I will say to them, I don't even know you. You evildoers, you lawless ones. Literally, it's lawless ones. You know, make up your own law. Uh, create your own uh, uh, way of living. It's, it's up to every individual, right? The lawless ones. But notice Jesus says, I don't even know you. Notice it doesn't say that Jesus would say, I don't know about you. But we never got acquainted. How do you get acquainted with somebody? You say, well, I don't really know somebody. You hang out, right? You, you listen. You relate. You take time 
to be with that person. You let that person speak. You share with that person your deepest concerns. To really know someone is time-consuming, is uh, transforming, because then those relationships help shape a person. And the biblical word for righteousness is literally right relationship. What God wants is a relationship with each of us. Starting, you know, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a great start. But let's be sure we are always making the Holy Spirit welcome in all of that we are, all that we are, and uh, the use of space and time and attention. What are we doing that really invites that relationship? So the to really get to know Jesus so that he will never say, I don't even know you. Um, and it may be uh, you think, hey, I've been sitting in church all this time, and now i got to get to know Jesus too? Well, yeah. <laughs> this is, uh, this is I, I've had some fun at churches. You have a little card and a, and a punch, so I could get it punched, you know, that I was in church on, on that day, and I could show that to St. Peter at the uh, pearly gates. No, it's not perfect attendance at church, although you ought to still come every Sunday. The point is that that feeds a process of getting to know Jesus and letting Jesus get to know you on a personal relationship basis. You don't want him to ever say, I don't even know you. We never hung out. When did you spend time with me? Can you imagine Jesus saying that? Here's what we know as a measurable fact. People come to church and they don't crack the Bible between Sunday and Sunday. There is no behavioral change. They act like everybody else. Lust, anger, you know, uh, rotten attitudes toward other people. Um, Drinking to excess. Percentage-wise, no difference. And if you add, uh, either come to church on special uh, prayer on Wednesday or whatever, uh, still no change. If they read the Bible, say, another day. So you got three times in a week we're spending 15 minutes in, in God's Word, still no change. Isn't that amazing? The tipping point, a huge tipping point, is four times a week. The power of four. It's pretty simple. Four is more than half of seven. Right? <laughs> so at least a little more than half of the days of the week, you're spending time with Jesus. And that's transformative. For adults, uh, drinking to excess, down 62%. Sex outside of marriage, down 59%. Viewing pornography, down 59%. Having violent thoughts, down 43%. For teenagers, the figures are higher. Uh, drinking to excess, down 80%. Just in the Bible, four different days a week for 10 or 15 minutes. In the Bible, devotionals are lovely, but literally 
in the Bible itself. Viewing pornography, down 62%. Violent thoughts, down 47% among teenagers. What a program, right? For uh, transforming human life, spending a little time with Jesus. And reading the Bible, not just to be able to check off that you've done your duty, but to actually let the Word speak to you and expect to be changed. If you're going to spend time with Jesus, you're not going to get up from that unchanged. If you get up from it unchanged, then think again. Maybe you sit back down and read a little more (laughs) or spend a little more time in prayer. And prayer should be half the time, at least half the time, silence. Letting our own souls to feel God's presence and to maybe hear or be touched in some way in the Lord's presence. But uh, hang out with Jesus. Fellowship. You work for the fruit. uh, uh, Nurture your own lives in a way that it's fruitful so you won't be like those false prophets that Jesus is talking about. And hang out with Jesus. Fellowship with Jesus. And then follow through. Notice Jesus says, Now everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only he who, what's the word? Does. The will of the Father. Actually do it. And this is a big problem. Good intentions pave the way in the wrong direction. Right? The important thing is the doing. And to emphasize that, Jesus actually concludes this awesome sermon with a, a simple parable that I'm sure you've heard of before. Uh, and we made it into a lovely children's song, too. Jesus says in the, in the following four verses after the, the text that we read, Jesus says, whoever hears my words and does them, and, and here, by the way, I want to caution, I'm going to use literally what Jesus says, not what your translation says. The two key words in this text are dumbed down by all our translators. Here's what Jesus says. If you hear my words and do them, you are like a shrewd builder that builds his house on the rock. And the rains will come down and the floods will rise and the wind will beat against that house and it will stand. Whoever hears my words, Jesus adds, and does not do them, came to church, but doesn't really take it seriously, continues to live as before. Whoever hears my words and does not do them is like a moron who built his house on the shifting sand next to the river. And the rains came down, the floods came up, and the wind beat against that house, and it crashed. Then we have a little commentary at the end of that chapter. People had heard this, were amazed. Jesus spoke with authority. It, It touched who they were. They understood. Jesus knew what he was talking about. Well, it's still true today. So the key to being accepted is to not only hear, but to do. To do. 
And he's not, he knows where we live in sinful world and all kinds of chaos, but at least let's get on the program of the doing, following through. And maybe the next time even better than this time, but do, simple two-letter word, do. And then, then it says, you know, whoever hears my words but does not do them. NIV says, does not put them into practice. That's just silly. It's the same word there as in verse 21. So it should be translated very simply. Put into practice? I don't know what that means. Whoever hears my word and does not do them is like a moron. Now, why is moron a good translation here? Does anyone know what the Greek word for moron is? Moron, right, thank you. Exactly. It's simply a transliteration of the Greek word. Now, is that suitable? Absolutely. In the New Testament, there's another word for fool, meaning someone who's just kind of not thinking about what they're doing. We, we say, yeah, I was foolish last night. I, I didn't plug in my phone, so I'm out of, you know, my battery's low or battery's out. We say, but how many of us have ever said I'm a moron? We, wouldn't, we wouldn't, don't talk about ourselves that way, right? It's an ultimate diss to someone else to say that they're a moron. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, don't call anyone a moron. It's the ultimate diss. If you call someone else a moron, you're in danger of hell. Jesus says, just 15 minutes before, he says, whoever hears my word and does not do them is a moron. So it's intended to be a a, a huge diss. In contemporary, um, yeah, the the, uh, medical uh, term uh, uh, moron in... um, uh, in the you know, medical uh, text, uh, refer to someone who is uh, a little has a little more mental power than an imbecile. Um, someone whose IQ is in in the fifties or sixties, uh, or another way to put it, more imaginative, uh, more uh, easy to relate to, is someone who's an adult with a six-year-old mentality. Know anyone like that? Any politicians you've heard of like that? That's a bipartisan comment, by the way. Uh, yeah, Jesus says, that's really dumb. To hear my words, then don't do them. But whoever hears my words and does them, Jesus says, is like the shrewd builder or the, the cunning builder, the crafty builder. Now, that's a word that throughout the Old Testament was negative, starting when the snake was called the most shrewd creature in the whole garden. All right? So what does this word mean? It's, it's in fact, a very positive comment. We made it negative, but it's a positive comment. A shrewd person is someone that knows what's going on, has the skills to do something about it, and has the guts 
that drive him or her to act. And too often we assume that someone that's shrewd will hurt us, will exploit us, will manipulate situations against us because it's so tempting to have such knowledge and skill and guts and do it just for yourself, to be self-centered. But huge positive transformations have happened in our world by people who were shrewd and godly. And um, I've, I've done a bit of a study uh, collecting models of that. Uh, probably the simplest one to talk about is Dr. Martin Luther King. Brilliant person. Uh, knew how to uh, make things happen. Had the guts to go into even very dangerous, obviously very dangerous, risky circumstances to do what was right. He was shrewd. But the most shrewd, in all of history, was Jesus. In Passion Week, he was the only one that knew what was going on. He manipulated Pilate and Herod and the Sanhedrin for the purpose of dying for our sin. So we have a a great model of uh, shrewdness in Jesus. Notice, well, as I said, all the Old Testament references in, in Hebrew and then the Greek translation of the Old Testament came out a couple hundred years before Jesus. Uh, in all these references, shrewd is treated as negative because it's loaded with all this extra temptation to be selfish, to manipulate things for ourselves or for our families or for our group, our clan. But Jesus uses the word shrewd in five different circumstances. Five. Always positive. Here the Savior can save souls, but also words. Isn't that great? Because it matters that we know what's going on. It matters that we get the skills to make the world better. It matters we have the guts to change the world. In Jesus' name. Whoever hears my words you want to be shrewd? Here's, here's the quick formula. Jesus says, whoever hears my words and does them is like a shrewd builder. Now, if you took architecture school or you're in real estate or whatever, you know you don't build a house on a rock. You could kind of think, well, that's really the foundation or whatever, okay. But the rock, the biblical reference to the rock is God himself. In the Old Testament, the rock that poured out the water, Moses says, that's the Lord pouring out the water. You know the, you know the verses in the Psalms uh, uh, referencing God as my rock and my salvation, right? So the, the reference to the rock, not just a rock, is the rock is that we... we follow through because we're building our lives on the very presence of God. He is the rock. And when the storm comes and the floods rise, the rain comes down, when the wind beats against our lives, as it will, it's not if, it's when, we're prepared to endure every circumstance because we're solidly anchored 
to the rock. And we have followed through in doing uh, what he says. Um, the opposite is moron. Yeah, if you come to church and say, oh, I got some lovely goosebumps. I heard some wonderful ideas that just tickle my heart or my brain or whatever. And then come this afternoon, come tomorrow morning. It's still the same old, same old, same old. Uh, Jesus has a word for you. And it starts with M. All right? Now, uh, I'm sorry, I'm a little tight here. Can I quickly tell like a three-minute moron joke? Is that acceptable? It's my favorite moron joke. Now, how many are old enough to remember moron jokes? Just a few of us, okay. You know, uh, I think in good, good progress, we've abandoned moron jokes. But this is one that should live. Okay? So I, I uh, boldly tell you this story as, as a way of understanding this text. Um, so I'm going to have to uh, ask you to use your imagination. Think of this as a walking stick, all right? Just a pattern, but a walking stick. So the story is about a, uh, a medieval time when, you know, before television, uh, uh, people, uh, the the you know, wealthy and the, the royalty would have uh, morons in their uh, rooms if they wanted to really be entertained, to have something to laugh at. It was really very inhumane. I'm not recommending this at all. Uh, but that's just the way it was. Um, so uh, now TV has replaced uh, watching morons. <laughs> not all TV. I mean, there's some good stations. But... Um, so in the story, uh, the, the king was uh, bored, just bored completely uh, with his moron and, and uh, explained to his advisors, you know, we've got to do something else. And someone came up with this brilliant plan. Send the moron out into the kingdom to find someone stupider than he. So a king gave the moron his walking stick and said, you know, here's, here's your job. I've got a great job for you. Go out to the kingdom, find someone stupider than you, more moronic than you. And so uh, the guy you know, headed out, and he was looking everywhere, trying to find someone stupider than he. And uh, the king was getting reports back through his men, you know, that were kind of entertaining. You know, it's hard enough determining people's intelligence just looking at them, but if you're already a moron yourself, it would. You can imagine some really goofy situations while he's trying to figure out who's dumber than he. Now, in the meantime, the king is getting sick. And he has different uh, specialists come to try to figure out how to make him feel better. But he's getting sicker and sicker. But yet, he's got these entertaining reports from his people about how the moron is trying to find someone dumber than him. But finally, finally, the, the king... Uh, is told by one of his physicians, you really need to put your house in order because we can't fix this. So the king started feeling guilty about sending the moron out. 
the moron keeps looking for, you know, someone dumber than himself to give the staff to. That was what the king said. Give the staff to someone dumber than me, dumber than you. Find someone dumber than you to give the staff to and bring him to the throne room. But the king sends out for him to be brought back in. He's going to tell the moron uh, in a way that he thinks the moron could understand what he's going through. So the king says to the moron, Moron, I'm going on a long journey. And the moron says, King, what have you done to prepare for your journey? And the king said, uh, nothing. So the moron said, here, take the staff. <laughs> Isn't that a great moron story? So you're welcome to repeat the story, yeah. Someone gives a bad joke, you could say, Hey, I've got a really great moron joke. And then kind of open up a discussion about meaning of life and death and how to live, how to prepare, right? It matters. It matters. So as we uh, look at this sermon, as we, we think about what Jesus has taught in these great chapters 5, 6, and 7, it's very important that we choose fruit. Choose the fruit, starting with love and joy and peace and patience. When we look at what Jesus teaches us, let's choose fellowship, the opportunity to be with Jesus, to you know, turn the cell phone off or put it in the other room, turn the volume off, and take time in prayer and Bible study Take 15 minutes at least four times a week. You know what I find out? If you aim for it every day, you'll get four. Because somehow when you plan to do that, everything else happens to distract you. And you really need to give it at least four. Uh, and um, you'll get four. And then finally, choose uh, to follow through. Do it. Do it, because Jesus has given us a way to live, a model from his own uh, life and his teachings. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you that, that you've given us this awesome, awesome sermon, Sermon on the Mount. And Lord Jesus, help us, Lord. Help us to choose fruit. Give us each now a thought of how we can be more fruitful in love and joy and peace. Lord Jesus, help us to choose fellowship, especially fellowship with you. Give us now, we pray in our own thought, ways to block out those 15 minutes, at least 15 minutes, to pray and to go deep into your words. And give us, Lord, the guts, the skills, and the, the mind to just do it. To do what you've taught us. To do what you've exemplified for us. We choose, Lord Jesus, to follow through. In Jesus' name.
And all the people said, Amen. Amen.